All right, so 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we spent a couple weeks there with the elder. We now move to, uh, from one church office to another, so elder to deacon. These are the two offices that are uh, described and characterized in the New Testament. And we talked about the idea that there are several terms that are used for that overseer position, whether it's overseer, whether it's elder, whether it's pastor. Uh, that are, are, those are three different ways to refer to the same position. And then the second position is deacon. And what you'll notice here is that the qualifications are very similar. Uh, There's not a whole lot of new ground broken here. It focuses on things like character and integrity and maturity. It's very much uh, a similar list to what we saw before. By the way, I I think we'll have some time for questions at the end, and you can ask about deacons. You can ask about other stuff in 1 Timothy if you want to, uh, but we will go through the text. So let's. I'll, I'll go ahead and read the whole text. And then we'll go verse by verse. So verse 8 is where we'll start. Uh, Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So we start with that idea of deacons likewise, and we've talked about that likewise phrase already in 1 Timothy. It came up in chapter 2, verse 9, when we had a transition from men to women. So men are to do this, likewise women are to do this. We'll see it again in verse 11 of this section, and we'll have to deal with that because there's some interesting things going on there. This ties the qualifications of the deacon to the qualifications of overseers or elders, Uh, And as we see in verse 10, both offices require testing. They both require due diligence. Uh, Overseers and deacons, I want to make sure we're defining deacon well here. Overseers and and deacons are distinct in function, but similar in character. Uh, I'm not sure who originally said it. It pops up in a lot of these uh, works about elders and deacons nowadays. But I think that to understand the difference between elders and deacons, it's best summed up in this statement that elders serve by leading and deacons lead by serving. Elders serve by leading and deacons lead by serving. I think that's the best way to understand it. Because the reality is that in scripture, deacons are rarely discussed. Like, this is the place you have to go if you want to talk about deacons. They're, they're mentioned in passing in Philippians 1.1 when Paul writes to Philippi and he says this is to the overseers and the deacons. But he doesn't say anything about them. He just shows that they are present there at Philippi. And Philippi is a pretty good church, right? So they have that. That's a good thing. Um, but I think the formative passage for deacons is Acts chapter 6. We'll get to more about that in just a little while, even though they're never called deacons in that passage. But I think that's the prototype deacons passage. And we were in Acts 6, what, a year ago, whenever I was in Acts chapter 6 and talked a little bit about it then on a Sunday morning. But if we go back to the word, the word is diakonos. And so deacon is simply a transliteration of the Greek word. That's where we get the term. It's, it's diakonos in the Greek. It becomes deacon in the, uh, in the English. And it's used to describe several different things. It's uh, used to describe service in general in Romans 12, 7. 
Uh, anytime you see the word minister in Scripture, usually minister has diakonos behind it, and that can mean uh, rulers and kings and things like that. It could also mean servants in the church. Uh, it means in, the, in its verb form to take care, Matthew 25, 44. That's the caring uh, for physical needs. And it refers to waiting tables. When Martha is serving Jesus and the disciples in Luke chapter 10, that is diakonos. It's, it, that's the root word of all that. If that weren't enough, angels are called diakonos in Hebrews 1.14, and Satan has his own diakonos in 2 Corinthians 11.14 and 15. So all that to say, diakonos doesn't always mean the office of deacon. It means servant. It means minister. It means uh, someone who serves someone else. And so we really have to look at context when we find that. Now, and that I'll, you'll see why that becomes important as we go through the, the letter. So literally a servant, that is what it means. And again, I've talked about this, but we see it used to refer to an office within the church. That's here and in Philippians 1.1. But most of the time, most of the usages that you see in the New Testament are much more general, much more general talking about service. Now, interestingly enough, I would argue that the basis of this is actually a very Jewish thing. It's actually a very Old Testament thing. Because if you think about the law, Think about how many laws God has in Scripture uh, of doing things like providing for women and children and foreigners and the destitute. There are, there, it's all over the Old Testament law. That's rare in the ancient world. You know, normally that wasn't what was going on, but no nation really cared for their people like Israel did. Now, I'm not saying they always did it well, but in the law, they were supposed to care for their people and even those that weren't necessarily their own people. Think of Ruth and the gleanings on the side of the fields and things like that. Uh, and, and when we get into more contemporary Judaism to this time, uh, they often organized and gave assistance through the synagogue. And, and so when you think about it, it was somewhat of a welfare program, what, maybe what you would call it, they would go around and make collections each week and they would give uh, widows and different things. Paul talks about this in Corinth. Uh, and they would give them daily things. They would give them weekly things and people would contribute to do that. Notice they didn't go to the government to do it. They did it themselves. They provided for their community in that way. So Jesus uses the word to describe the required self-sacrifice that's involved in following Christ. I'll give you some examples. In Matthew 20, 26, he says, It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, your diakonos. Uh, John 12, 26, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 3, 5 when he goes through that whole idea where they're choosing allegiances of different guys in Corinth. And he says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, diakonos, through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. He also calls himself a diakonos in Colossians 1, 25. So all that to say, we're all diakonos in a sense. We're all called to this service. And so when we think about diakonos in a broad sense, and then we look at diakonos in, a, in an office sense, those are two different things, but they both require the idea of selfless service. It's clear here in this context that Paul's describing an official office within the church. This is not the general understanding that we see in other places. Now, let's take a step out of the text for a second and look at ourselves. How does PBC view deacons? What, what, what is our vision 
for deacons? And, and what are other churches' visions of deacons? Because depending on the church that you walk into, they may have a very different definition of what a deacon does. They might have a different job description of what a deacon is called to do. But I would say that our view of deacons would line up very well with several other churches, uh, Bible-believing Presbyterian churches, uh, Reformed churches, Brethren churches, also many Baptist churches, and of course Bible churches would, would take our position on deacons. However, there are many churches that would take a much different view of deacons. For example, the Catholic Church, if you've grown up or been around the Catholic Church. Deacons are members of the clergy. They almost, they're almost like junior priests. They kind of do all the things the priests do, except they can get married. Like, that's kind of what it sounds like to me. Um, they can do liturgy. They can preach a homily if, they, if they're called to. They do a lot of things with liturgy and word and the service. They come alongside the priests. But that's how the deacons... Now, that was a much later development. That's not a New Testament thing. That's a later church history development. The Orthodox Church operates much, much the same way. Deacons are kind of like junior priests. Uh, we have what I experienced much in the South is that uh, many Baptist churches of many different colors would have one of two things, either A, deacons acting as elders. The elders are very rare in, in the South. They, a lot of churches don't have that, especially among the Baptist and Bible variety. And so the deacons basically functioned as elders even though they were called deacons. Or you have a situation where the deacons basically become kind of an advisory board to a senior pastor who acts as a CEO. That often happens in churches. Uh, if we look at some of the ones that we probably wouldn't uh, associate with as much, uh, the Anglican church views deacons, and the Methodists are much the same way. Uh, deacons are, are, it's a transitional office. And so you become a deacon before you move into the priesthood. And it, it, so it's the same kind of thing. Whereas deacons of the Catholic church aren't guaranteed to move to the priesthood. Most of the time in the Anglican and Methodist church, that's what would happen. It's kind of uh, the pre-priesthood kind of thing. Uh, although I guess in the Anglican Church now you could be a permanent deacon, but that's a fairly new development. Uh, by the way, I always just like to mention this, not a church, but in the Mormon tradition, the office of deacon is open to all male members at the age of 12. And you are called, you, every boy is recommended to become a deacon in the, the Latter-day Saints Church at the age of 12 which is kind of strange, right? But also, it's probably not as strange if you've ever had a 19-year-old kid come to your door and say, I'm an elder in the church. Uh, they they, they kind of miss the, <laughs> the point of all that, but they see the deacons and the elders as part of that, that body. That's what they believe. All right, let's go to that form, formative passage, which is Acts chapter 6. And you'll remember there is a controversy in Jerusalem during this time. And Again, while the word deacon is not used in that formal sense, the event seems to be the origin of that office. Uh, I often refer to these men as the proto-deacons. And it says, now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. That word is diakonia. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve. There's the word again, diakonean tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we, speaking as the apostles, will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry, diakonia, of the word. So, of course, we find seven faithful men in this passage, if we kept reading, uh, among them Stephen and Philip. Uh, from Acts 6, what can we say uh, that deacons need to be required to have? Well, they need to be full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. That's what we have from Acts 6. Paul fills that out in our passage tonight. 
Um, While their ministry might be concerned primarily with physical things, the ministry is a spiritual ministry. Because there is service here, there is need, there are things going on here. And so, because this is both physical and spiritual in nature, a deacon must have the confidence of the congregation. That's the testing idea, that's the observation idea of character and behavior. I would say that the duties of the deacon, if we want to lay those out, one is to care for the physical needs of the church. So as I get into each one of these, here's my illustration that I like to use with this. The deacon is the shock absorber on your car. You don't notice it, it's underneath the car, you know, you just assume it's, it's working, and, but when it's not working, you'll know it, right? The ride's going to get real bumpy if the shock absorber isn't doing its job, okay? And I, I think that's, the, that's a good way to think about what deacons are to be. They're the hands and the feet. They're where the rubber meets the road when it comes to ministry, the first line of, of defense when it comes to that ministry and all that. And, and so uh, here we have this first introduction of those folks. And why do they introduce them? Because there's controversy in the church. There's, po- there's potential division in the church. So how do we address that with service and love, with dealing with the issue that's there? So care for the physical needs of the church. Why? Well, I, I've got three reasons. One, caring for the church's physical needs serves the well-being of their members. If you have hungry people in the church, the church should be feeding those people. Right? If someone is in great need, the church steps up and fills that need. Number two, it serves the spiritual well-being of the members because there is a connection there within the body of Christ that we are serving one another. And then it serves as a witness to the world outside. It starts in the household of God, and we take care of our people first and foremost. Number two, it works for the unity of the body. Remember the controversy in Acts 6? There's a potential of a split in the church among Hebrews and Greeks, both Jewish Both have the same scripture, both have the same gospel, and yet there's a social issue there that it threatens to to split the church. So what do we do? We put faithful men in charge of that to make sure that there's not divisions going on. Number three, support the ministry of the word. And I think what you can see in the passage, I'll go back to it so you can see it because I just love how how this is written, Um, that if you read that passage, you will see that both deacons and elders are deaconing in that passage. They are both serving. And so the, the service takes on two very different forms. Look at what it says there, that it is not desirable of us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables or serve food. And he says there in verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the deaconing of the word. So deacons deacon the tables so that elders can deacon the word. We are both in service. We are both in ministry. We are both serving that higher power, higher calling that's there. It's elders de- or deacons deacons so that elders can deacon the word. So both of those roles are really essential. And, and when those roles get confused, it creates a very uh, clunky model of church. Uh, back to that CEO model, you find this in many Baptist churches in the South. Uh, and I, I've heard of guys that were pastoring a church while they were mowing lawns for church members during the week. They were cutting down trees, they were clearing gutters, they were doing, well, and there's nothing wrong with that, right? It's not saying that, Pastor, I couldn't come out and help in a service project. But if they're spending every minute of their day doing physical needs for the church, then they're not spending time in the Word to be able to feed the church spiritually, and the church suffers, right? And, and, and in the same way, if, if, if uh, people not qualified to be elders are now trying to move into that area, it just creates confusion. And, and, and again, both roles are, are essential so that one is not confused with the other, and neither is forgotten. I just, I, I got, that's not my th- statement, but I think that's really good. 
that one is not confused with the, elder, the, the other. Elders are not confused with deacons. Physical service is not confused with, with the preaching of the word, and neither is forgotten. And why do I say that? Because I think that's what you see in many modern gospel presentations, a social gospel. Right? Now, is there anything wrong with helping people, with doing service? No. But if you're saying that that service is the gospel, you've now confused the issues. Right? We've got to make it. So, so it's that idea of, uh, well, as long as I feed the homeless lunch, then I've done a good thing. Yeah, but if you haven't given them the gospel, you may have filled their bellies, but you've left them right where they were when you left them the first time. Right? So we, we can't have these things confused. They're both to be present, and yet they have to be distinct. All right, let's get into the characteristics or qualifications. Verse 8, deacons likewise, likewise as the elders, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain. So a deacon is not an elder, but he is elder-like. The qualifications are very similar. His position does require a bearing that is almost identical to the elder. Uh, Most of these things we could put on both categories, the one thing that you will see that is missing from the deacon description is the able to teach. Now that doesn't mean a deacon can't teach, it just means to be a deacon you don't need to have a gift of teaching. All right, Deacons must be, here are four things, and I'll go through them one by one. Men of dignity, the Greek word there is semnos, we've seen versions of this before. It's an all-encompassing term, it really, to be a man of dignity you do all the things that follow it. Okay? Deacons are to be proper, dignified, respectable. We've seen this word a couple times already. It was the same word used to describe the appropriate dress and manner of a woman in 2.10. It was also applied to the overseer and how the overseer should manage his family. In chapter 3, verse 4, it is applied to women again in verse 11 of this chapter. Number two, not double-tongued. You can kind of see that in the Greek. You see dialogos, and so two-worded, okay, that you speak out of both sides of your mouth. The NIV translate that, translate that, translates it sincere. Now, that, 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 that's kind of a translation for it. That's an interpretation. It's not necessarily a translation. But that's essentially what it means. It's, it, it points to the overall meaning of the word. The deacon is truthful. He doesn't lie. He doesn't spread gossip. Uh, he doesn't say one thing while doing another. Perhaps you remember, I think, the inspiration for John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress, I think, is this verse. Perhaps you remember that one character that was named Mr. Two Tongues, right? That's, I think that's, this is where he gets it from because that's exactly what it says. Number three, not addicted to much wine. We ran into that last week with the elders, and we talked about it. Actually, let me go back one thing. I had a verse here written down uh, because what came to mind with that double-tongued idea was James chapter 3. Remember when James starts talking about the tongue, and this is exactly how he describes it. In verse 8 he says, But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men we, who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs, nor can salt water produce fresh? That's speaking out of both sides. That's a double-tongued, and James would even say a double-minded man in, in the way that we do things. A, a deacon is not to be that. And then again, not addicted to much wine. We talked about that last week. Same requirement that we see for the overseer. <clears throat> we also talked about how that's, you know, we think, why isn't that obvious? Well, it wasn't obvious in Corinth because people are getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. So apparently there were, that was always a risk. And as I said, a culture that drank wine with meals, that was always a possibility of getting drunk. So there, there you have it. And finally, 
not fond of sordid gain. Now, we saw that last week with the elders, that not a lover of money or greedy of filthy lucre, as King James would say, parallels that here. Titus uses the same word as a requirement for overseers in chapter 1, verse 7, so it must be a parallel term. And, and, and why do we need to say that? That sordid gain, uh, dishonest gain might be another way to put that. So if a deacon is collecting resources and in charge of services, in charge of finances that's, that's to be distributed out to the community, you don't want a guy who wants to be selfish. You don't want a guy who's in it for himself. He has to be selfless. He has to be discerning. On top of that, if I'm in charge of distributing food and resources, then people may come to me to try to say, hey, my family needs a little more. Could you put a little more over here? Kickbacks, bribes, those kinds of things. Imagine that happening in the, in the world. But that's, that's the idea. So if you've got a guy that's going to take bribes, he's not the guy that needs to be a deacon. Um, he doesn't use his position as a means for his own advancement. That's what's being said. What's the contrast? Verse 9, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So two elements required here for the deacon. One, strong doctrine, and two, moral purity. We need good doctrine, and you need a good conscience. And we've talked about this earlier in the, in the letter. He used this same dichotomy. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. But why is this being stressed? Why is strong doctrine and moral purity or clear conscience being stressed? Because they're in Ephesus. And false teaching is everywhere right now in Ephesus. And so while a deacon is not required to teach, you know, where an elder would be exhorted to preach the gospel, teach those things clearly, the deacon isn't teaching, but he has to hold to that confession of the faith. He has to be able to understand what he believes and why he believes it. He needs to be well informed. He must be studied up. He knows what he believes and why he believes it. Back in chapter 1, verse 19, Paul used this same kind of thing. He talked about uh, men were to be keeping faith and a good conscience. It's the same word translated clear conscience here. And remember, we talked about that idea. You hold to the objective truth of Scripture, and that makes your subjective conscience aligned with the Word of God. If you get that out of order, if your conscience starts to inform the Word of God, you try to change objective truth. Objective truth stands and never changes, and we conform to it. That's where the conscience comes in. Come back to that in a second. The word there, mystery, again, it's just kind of a transliteration. Mysterion is the Greek word. What mysteries are we talking about here? Well, Paul uses this term frequently in the New Testament. Mystery just means something that was once hidden. Once we didn't know this was the case, now it's been revealed. Here are a few times it's used. Romans 11.25, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Would you have read the Old Testament and knew, okay, God's going to put a hardening on Israel and he's going to focus on the Gentiles? You, that wouldn't jump out at you in the Old Testament. That's a mystery that's been revealed in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty one. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. The idea of glorification. We didn't understand that's what happens at the return of Christ. And then Ephesians five thirty two. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Remember, he uses marriage uh, there to use that idea, revealing the nature of the relationship of the church to Christ. Matthew 13, 11 says, To you, Jesus speaking to his disciples, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Remember, that's right after Jesus starts speaking in parables. And the disciples are going, what are you talking about? Why are you teaching this way? And he says, because it's not for them to know, it's for you to know. 
And, and, and he tells them about what's going on. Um, the mystery of the faith are, again, truths that were once hidden and now revealed, specifically concerning the gospel, concerning Christ, concerning the kingdom, how that's going to work out. I mean, it goes back when we think about the idea of revelation. Why is revelation called revelation? Because it was once hidden and now it's revealed. This is what's going to happen. This is, you know, and that's why I think anybody who interprets revelation as something that's just kind of this general description of church history or persecution throughout the, the ages, then, then there's no revelation there. I don't need revelation to know that the world is going to be against the church and that it's going to get worse. We'll see it in Timothy, right? That it's going to get worse before the end. The why it's a revelation is because nobody knew this was going to happen and God is picking up the curtain a little bit to show you what's behind it. In other words, we have the truth. It's been written. It's been preached. Now are we obedient to those mysteries of the faith that have been revealed? These things were unknown to humankind. We only know it because God has revealed it to us. What will we do with that information? Will we hold fast to that confession, or will we trust in our own conscience? We see it here in Hebrews chapter 9, that same idea of conscience. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, to do what? To cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. In other words, the blood of Christ conforms you to the image of Christ, makes, it, makes us able to pursue godliness where we couldn't do that before. If you hold correct doctrine, that informs your conscience to actively choose what is biblical and to reject what is not biblical. That's the idea. If you believe this objective truth, your subjective thinking will be conformed to that. Not always, not perfectly, but you will be able to recognize right and wrong. That's why when you're in Christ and you have this knowledge of holiness and you have this knowledge of right and wrong, when you do fall into sin, it rips you apart. Why? Because your conscience has been cleansed of dead works. You know they're dead. When you're not in Christ, hey, I'll do whatever I want to do. But now you have this idea of dead works and you understand it. Remember, doctrine's objective, conscience is subjective. If the subjective tries to overrule the objective, the result is false teaching. It's happening all over Ephesus where Paul is writing now. And if you want a more modern theologian, consider Jiminy Cricket. Um, <clears throat> always let your conscience be your guide. Well, that could be good advice or it could be terrible advice, depending on the state of your conscience. Right? If your conscience is conformed to the will of God, follow your conscience. You might, Martin Luther, that's what Martin Luther said. Right? That, this is where my conscience is. I can't do anything but stand on this. But if your conscience is seared and warped and stained by sin, the last thing you need to do is follow your conscience. Okay? So I don't know what Pinocchio's spiritual state was at that point. But you know, if you're not born again, you cannot trust your conscience. It's you know, always follow your heart. Nope, probably not a good idea. Desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jonathan Edwards used this illustration. He said the conscience was the sundial and God's word is the sun. He, I think this is a helpful thing if you know what a sundial is. It's been a while since we've used sundials, but... Uh, only the light of the sun can give a correct reading on a sundial. Moonlight doesn't work. Candlelight doesn't work. Both of those are going to mislead you, but the sunlight of Scripture always tells the truth. I thought that was a good illustration of that. That's, that's the conscience being, being uh, submissive to the objective truth of the Word. All right, verse 10. These men must also first be tested. We talked about this last week. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. So the fact that there is testing, that raises some questions, right? 
You know, Zach mentioned last week, you know, is this a written test? You know, he knows people that have done a written test for that. Okay, well, maybe, but not completely, right? First, we got to ask, what's the nature of the testing? What, how do we test a deacon? How do we test an elder? And the be tested there is, in the, in the grammar, it's, it's the present passive. So it, it indicates a testing over a period of time. It could be read, let them continue to be tested. This is not something that you show up one time and take the SAT and we'll see what score you got. This is a, this is a constant testing. And considering the previous verse, I, I think it would include both doctrine and character. Right? We need, both of those things have to be present. And, and so what could this look like? Well, perhaps a potential leader would be given smaller tasks to complete, to oversee, before being given a larger official leadership position. Let's see how he does with this. Let's, and, and of course, we're, we're observing life and things like that. Second question that comes up is, who does the testing? Right? We, if they need to be tested, do we have an official tester in the church who oversees this? Well, and, and I don't know that we can be totally dogmatic about this, but I think you have two aspects to this. In Acts 6, who chose the seven men in Acts chapter 6? The congregation chooses seven faithful men. But in Titus 1.5, Paul says, Titus, you need to select faithful men for these positions. So which is it? Well, I would say it's both. I think there, there are two aspects that go on here. If we go back to the leading and ruling responsibility of the elders, I think the biblical approach would be selection by the elders and confirmation by the congregation. I think that, that would be the way that it should be done. And that confirmation, by the way, and this is important to understand when we understand elder rule within a church, that confirmation is more of a confirmation of the elder's ability to lead than it is about the decision at hand. Does that make sense? it's not a popularity contest. It's not an election like we would elect a local official. It's the elders in their wisdom have come together. The congregation trusts the elders. The elders say, this is the approach we are going to take. And the congregation says, we affirm the elders' leadership in this matter. That's generally how we would, we would talk about these things. By the way, the maturity of the congregation might also play into this process. If you're a brand new church plant, and nobody's been part of the church very long, well, then the leaders of the church have to select the men, right? But if the church is more mature, then the congregation might be more involved in those things. We ask for recommendations on a yearly basis for people to serve in these positions because uh, you've seen people, you've been around longer. So after testing, if the candidate was found to be above reproach, he served as a deacon. That's the requirement. Not, not said, but implied here, we talked about it last week, probably not a new convert. New converts probably shouldn't be considered for these leadership positions uh, because if they're to be tested, then we have to have a time for one to prove their character, to prove their integrity. That's not done in a month. It's not done in, in six months. It usually needs more time. And that word above reproach is synonymous with the word back in 3.2 that pertain to elders. It's a little different word, but it means basically the same thing. And Paul uses it twice in Colossians chapter 1 when he describes Christ presenting us blameless before the Father. So this man, is, if he's found to be blameless, then he should serve as a deacon. <clears throat> All right, now we get to the controversial verse in the passage. And it's you women again. Uh, always causing trouble. Um, <laughs> women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. All right, why is this controversial? Well, because we've got to understand who he's talking to. We need to figure out who the women in verse 11 is. And 
the second part about this, and I'll show you that it seems out of place. It seems kind of strange to be here because from verses 8 through 10, it's deacons, deacons, deacons. Verse 11, he says women or wives. And then verse 12, he says deacons are to be the husband of one wife. Why, I mean, we might do this in conversation. Like if, I'm, if we're having a conversation, I might go, oh, I forgot to say this. And I go, but when I write things out, I usually don't do it that way. It seems kind of out of place here in the middle. But it's also difficult linguistically. We've talked about this word a little bit, but the Greek word there is gunakos. And gunakos means women or wives. Depending on the context, that's how we figure out what it is. It's the same way that man and husband are the same word. We just figure it out via context if we're talking about a man or if we're talking about a husband, if we're talking about a woman, or we're talking about a wife. Now, what, compl- what makes this difficult? Well, in two, chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, when he addressed the women in the church, he was addressing the women in the church. And you know what he called them? Gunakas. Then in chapter 3, and again in, in the next verse in chapter 12, he talks about the husband of one wife. And you know what word he uses? Gunakas. <laughs> So he's used it in both contexts here, very close to the way it's used here. And so the, here's the question that's before the house. Was Paul, is Paul here in verse 11 discussing the wives of deacons, how the wives of deacons are to behave, or is Paul presenting uh, deaconesses, female deacons that serve in the church? That's the question that's at hand in this verse. All right, I'll show you where this comes into play. For example, this verse gets pulled up for uh, uh, the position. Romans 16.1 says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant, a diakonon of the church, which is at Chantria. And so it's argued also that, by the way, that Euodia and Syntyche in, in Philippi in chapter 4 also held this position. And so they go, well, look, it says right there that Phoebe is a diakonon. Well, as I said earlier, we don't know if that and there's no indication which one Paul means here. Paul could be saying she's a deacon at the church, or he could be saying she's a wonderful servant at the church. There's really no way to tell based on that verse. And so when people use this verse to argue their position, they've already decided what they want it to say, and they go, oh, look, it says diaconate. Okay? That's what's often uh, appealed to. Here's the difficulty. New Testament Greek did not have a special word for deaconess. The word diakonos is a male noun. There was no female counterpart to it. And so what you find, that there are servants that are women in the New Testament, and you know what they're called? They're called diakonos. So it's like when Paul will, will address a congregation. He will say brethren, but he also means brothers and sisters. Right? So there is no female servant word in the New Testament Greek. Now, later Greek developed that word. Uh, in church history, they developed it. Um, but both male and female helpers are described this way. All right, so back to the question. Is Paul advocating for and addressing deaconesses in the church, or is he talking to wives? Let me just quickly lay out the arguments for you. For the argument that he's talking to deacons' wives, one is, the again, the, the, the structure of the passage, that deacons are addressed, male deacons are addressed on each side of this verse. So it would be strange in the middle of that discourse to bring up uh, female deacons. The likewise in the middle... I think can be used by both arguments. Here, likewise, points to a somewhat related category. Of course, if you're arguing for women, you're going to say it points to an entirely different category. You can use the, you know, the language and statistics are kind of like hostages. If you torture them enough, they'll say what you want them to say. Uh, That's kind of how it works. 
the, sec- uh, the third thing would be, there's an abbreviated list here. So our female deacons only, only have to do these three things, but the male deacons have to do 12 things. That, would, that seems kind of inconsistent. And then are the requirements gender specific? If you're a male deacon, you have to be these things, but if you're a female deacon, you have to be these things. That seems a little inconsistent in the whole thought process. So here's the other thing, that in this passage, the word deacon is not there. Okay? So these women are not called deacons. It just says, and likewise the women, or likewise the wives. So you're making an assumption that they are being called deacons without that word being there, like it is in 16.1 with Phoebe. Phoebe is literally called a, a diaconon. It's not the case here. So the other thing, again, back to the, the structure, the reference to them is sandwiched between two references to deacons, which I think would make a, an allusion to the wives pretty natural. Now, I'm giving, showing you my cards early, but um, uh, 8 to 10 addresses male deacons, 12 and 13 addresses male deacons. It would be kind of strange for 11 to take a whole different left turn. That's just what I would argue. That, so what would happen is, okay, we're deacons, 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 abrupt left turn, talk about female deacons, right back to deacons and keep talking about it. Okay? I, if it was an oral conversation, maybe, I think it's, it, it doesn't make as much sense in the written word. All right, the argument for women is this, requirements for wives are not mentioned for overseers. Right? The overseer's wife is not mentioned at all in the, in the earlier part of the chapter. So why are deacons' wives mentioned if elders are not? And so that says, well, if, wouldn't he address both wives if that was the case? Must be talking about female deacons. Again, the likewise is used to the, in the same way as it is in verse 8, as in likewise deacons, deacons likewise, elders and then deacons likewise. So a new category. Okay, again, the problem is he returns to the old category in the very next verse. There's no possessive pronoun here, so it doesn't say their wives. It just would say wives. Okay, and then both men and women are described as diakonos in the New Testament, so they would say we can apply that. Let me respond to a few of those. Number one, <clears throat> um, <clears throat> I would say that it's not that an elder's wife isn't required to be faithful. She certainly is, Right? But let's consider the, uh, the responsibility, the job description. Um, the, the work of a deacon is much more uh, tailored to the idea that the wife would be heavily involved in that activity. Okay? So when, when I preach or teach, my wife doesn't need to come up and stand beside me to preach and teach. Right? Now, it doesn't mean she doesn't support. It doesn't mean she's not part of that ministry. It doesn't mean any of that. It just means to fulfill that main duty of the elder she doesn't have to stand beside me. But to do the job of the deacon, to go into others' homes, to minister to women and children, well, a man's going to need his wife there. Second of all, if the wife is not on board with that, that's not going to go very well. But I, you know, I, Brad and I were talking the other day. I was, it's kind of like, okay, honey, I, you know, I'm a deacon in the church, and I go, honey, I have to go over and help this young single lady. I'll be at her house all day working in her room. That's not wise, right? That's not something that we should do. And so... What we, the, the wife would be very much involved in that idea. I think that would be my answer to that first part. Uh, the likewise part, it, the, the problem with, with that, uh, well, again, back to the, the interpretation in, in the very next verse, it, it creates a, a speed bump. I'm trying to go through this as briefly as possible. I think, let me back up and just say this. I think what is clear from the New Testament is that women were faithful servants and they were very much involved in the ministry of the New Testament church. And they very much should be involved in the ministry of the church. And their due honor, their due respect for that faithful service. Think of the women that we find in the scriptures. Remember we talked about this? In the Jewish world, women are not involved at all 
In the Greek and Roman world, women are not involved at all. They are lesser people. And what do we find? Women like Tabitha and Lydia and Phoebe and Mary and so many other faithful servants in the early church that are performing good works. And, by the way, if we follow church history, from the earliest parts of church history, there were female servants in the church that visited the sick, that acted as doorkeepers at the women's entrance to the church. Yes, there were women's entrance to the church because it was a synagogue like that. They kept order among church women. They assisted in baptism for women. They taught females in preparation for baptism. And they acted as, as sponsors for vulnerable or, or, or uh, detached children. So let me give you my uh, two cents. There's a visible. Okay. This is the only time this is addressed in all of Scripture. It's the only verse we have that deals with this topic, and it's somewhat ambiguous. So I would argue that to be overly dogmatic here probably wouldn't be the wise thing to do. That being said, if you want to know where I stand on this, if you want to know where the church stands on this, I believe that Paul is addressing the wives of deacons. I think that's what's being said here, mainly due to the structure of the passage and the repeated requirement for the deacon to be the husband of one wife. What's the very next thing that's said after this verse, the deacon being the husband of one wife? I think that connects the verses for me. Um, Also, the fact that deacon is not mentioned in the verse, women and wives, whichever way you translate it, it's too general a term to be designating an office. I think if Paul wanted to do that, he could have been much more thorough with it. However, I would also say this, the interpretation of gunikos in verse 12 as women, it's not unwarranted and it's not necessarily incorrect. Like Somebody could come to that conclusion and I can't point to the language and say that's definitely not what it says. Right? So what I would say is I would be a little bit charitable with this interpretation. Do I believe the Bible prescribes deaconesses? No, I don't. But what I say a church that employs deaconesses, a church that might have female deacons in their service ministry, is violating Scripture? No, not necessarily. If, I, if, if there was a team of female deacons who were serving women in the church, I wouldn't condemn that. I wouldn't say you're in sin for that. Uh, I think the text is clear, whether it's women or wives, that women are to be involved, involved in service ministry, uh, which is why I'm a little more gracious in interpreting this verse. But let me say this, if they were employing female elders and or pastors, that's an entirely different matter. That is explicitly said, that's not okay. But with this, I think there's a little bit of leeway. And by the way, if you were curious, there are many pastors and theologians who we would respect, who affirm the commissioning of female deaconesses. John Calvin was one of them. (laughs) John Calvin believed in female deacons. Charles Hodge, B.B. Warfield, James Montgomery Boyce, John Piper. You know, guys that we read, guys that we would respect, uh, recognize, or, or believe in the commissioning. Not the ordination, but the commissioning of female deacons. Now, uh, what's the other issue that throws a bunch of mess into all this? That churches commissioning deaconesses and defining the role via 1 Timothy 3.11 are pretty rare. Most churches that have female deacons as a title are using that in an entirely unbiblical way. So that, that becomes kind of difficult when you think about that. That most churches today that give women that title are usually twisting the tradition, are usually doing some man-made thing. Uh, and by the way, I, I don't know too many people in Bible-believing churches that walk around with the title of deacon. 
Now, they may be serving as deacon, but they don't go say, I'm deacon so-and-so, I'm deacon so-and-so. It's always in churches that really value titles and authority. Okay? So that makes it difficult as well. But hope that wasn't confusing. You can ask questions at the end if I'm there. Okay? So here's the list for those women or the wives. They must be dignified. That's the same term used of deacons in 3.8. So he'd be repeating himself if he's talking about another office here. Uh, these, uh, this idea of uh, not being a malicious gossip. I don't know if you can see the Greek word there, but may diabolus. What's diabolos in the Greek? That's the devil. Okay, so that's quite the idea. Uh, it, it's, it's, uh, it's the same word that Peter uses in 1 Peter 5.8. It literally means slanderer or accuser. Okay, so when it says malicious, that's where that malicious gossip comes in, not to be a slanderer or an accuser. Uh, in 2 Timothy 3.3 3 and Titus 2.3, that same word refers to people who slander or misrepresent others. It's similar to admonition to the deacons in 3.8 not to be double-tongued. Okay? And when you think about a forked tongue and a snake and a serpent and all that, there's, it ties in. To be temperate, we've seen that word already. Moderate and sober, used in chapter 3, verse 2 for an overseer. And then faithful in all things, that is exactly as it sounds. Pistis is faithful, Pasin is all. Faithful in all. Uh, and reliable in all that they do. Uh, the other thing that I would say here in an interpretation is notice that there's no mention of marital fidelity here. If we were talking about female deacons, and he's made a big deal about uh, elders being the husband of one wife, deacons being the husband of one wife, wouldn't a female deacon need to be the wife of one husband? It's not mentioned here. All right. I think he's contrasting this to what some of the women in Ephesus are doing. In chapter 5, he says he talks about women who are described as sensual, unfaithful, idle, gossips and busybodies, and some who have already turned aside to follow Satan. So it's in direct content. He can't be one of these women if you're going to uh, be faithful in the church. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 6 and 7, he says, Weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. So these wives or women were to have qualifications that were in stark contrast to those who were being duped by the false teachers. All right, verse 12. And this won't take us long because we've heard all of these qualities already with elders. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own household. By the way, our interpretation of verse 12 would depend on how we interpret verse 11. Uh, If Paul is referring to deacons' wives, is what I would argue, Then verse 12 is a return to the subject of deacons because he was just talking about an aspect of that. He talked about their wives, and then he comes back and says, you need to be the husband of one wife, you need to manage your household well. Thematically, I think it flows very well. If he is thinking of deaconesses, then he's returning to this idea. Let me say a few more words about deacons. I just think from a flow standpoint, the first one makes more sense. And again, we've seen all of these already, the exact same phrase that that we studied a couple weeks back, husbands of only one wife good managers of their children, and of their own households. All of these requirements were the same for elders. Uh, So deacons must also be faithful husbands. They must also manage their households well. They also must do it with dignity and respect. And again, what are we seeing here but Paul linking the church and the home? The two ordained bodies that, that God has designed, those things affect one another. They are tied together in a church setting. All right, finally, verse 13. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Okay, we could read that. That, by the way, that served is from diakoneo. So it's for those who have deaconed well as deacons. For those who have served well as servants. That's literally what it says. And it's a promise. 
If you serve well as a servant in the church, you obtain a high standing and a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. What are those rewards? Well, let's look at that. Deacons obtain for themselves. I would argue that this is not a title in the church, that if you serve well, you get to be called a deacon. You know, you get the, you get the stars on your shoulders. That's not what it is. And I would also argue that some would say this, talks about, this is talking about prominence in the kingdom. Well, I think that's a reality, like God will give us kingdom rewards, but I don't think that's what Paul's talking about here either. I think Paul's talking about one's reputation and character, that a deacon who serves well gains a high standing, a high character evaluation with both God and man. God is pleased with a faithful servant, and man will show respect. That's what we need to see uh, within the church. And then great confidence. I know that, you know, we read that word right there, pollen, uh, but it's, it's from polus. It's poly. It's many. Okay, so it's, 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 a, it's a whole lot of confidence. They get a whole lot of confidence here. And this same term is used in Ephesians 3.12 and Hebrews 10.19 to describe our access to God. We can approach the throne with great confidence. And so in Christ, we have confidence before both God and man to approach the throne of grace and to proclaim the gospel to the world. That, we will ha- that, that if you serve well, God honors that, that, that effort, right? Not in a salvific way, but he honors the obedience that we have, and he gives us greater confidence. He gives us greater strength to do these things, to both be warriors in prayer, to also be bold in evangelism, and it, it, it is in both God and man. And where do we find that? Only in Christ Jesus. That that confidence, that kind of confidence, that kind of boldness in prayer and evangelism only comes through Christ. All right, so let's kind of wrap up. Looking back, it's clear that the qualifications for the overseer and the deacon are very similar. Why is that? Because there's a core of Christian qualities which all Christian leaders should possess. This isn't necessarily a, a job description like a secular job. This is a character thing. And so putting the two lists together, we really see that there are five main areas to be investigated. In regard to himself, the candidate has to be self-controlled and mature. In what areas? Well, areas like drink, money, temper, tongue. In regard to his family, he needs to be faithful to his wife, able to manage his household well. In regard to his relationships, he's to be hospitable and gentle. In regard to outsiders, remember the love of strangers we talked about last week, he's to be highly esteemed that even the Gentiles cannot hold anything against him because he carries himself with such integrity. And in regard to the faith, he's to be strong in his hold on the truth, and he's supposed to, for an elder's case, gifted in teaching it, in a deacon's case, obedient to it 100%. And, And the balance of the chapter is very helpful because what do we find here but material here, both to encourage the right people that need to do this job and discourage the wrong people from doing this job. Both of those things are present, and it's balanced in the chapter. But as I said at the beginning, we are all diakonos. We are all called to be servants. We are all called to serve within the church. Why? Because that's what our master told us to do. Sometimes it's just that simple. Why do you do the Lord's Supper? Because Jesus told us to, (laughs) and that's enough. And so in Matthew 20, 28, and I've replaced serve, which is often our English translation, with deacon. This is how it would read. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be deaconed, but to deacon and to give his life a ransom for many. 
He's our example. He's who we follow. He's the great servant we are to serve. And by the way, if you're looking for a leadership model in the New Testament, the only one you're going to find is servant leadership. First shall be last, last shall be first. That idea. Here's a quote to finish up. Scottish theologian, 20th century, T.F. Torrance, he said, It is only in this Jesus that we learn what diakonia really is, service. The loving service and mercy that looks for no reward beyond the knowledge that we do what is commanded of us and looks for no thanks from those to whom mercy is extended, but it is only because this Jesus has made our cause his very own. Sharing our existence in servitude and sharing with us his own life of love that we may and can engage in this kind of diakonia in him. Only in Christ Jesus does this kind of selfless thing go on and give glory to him. All right, we got six minutes. Any questions? <laughs> Any questions? Brad. Yeah, what, so Brad says, what are, the, what are the earliest indications from church history we have in terms of church structure and government. Um, I think we have some in the, in the epistles, right, in the fact that Paul's writing to Philippi and saying overseers and deacons, that's in place. In Acts, we've seen elders already in place. So, and if Acts 6 is that prototype deacon ministry, how quickly did that move to other churches? Uh, we do have in, uh, in early church history, I mean, we're talking uh, first century, first, second century documents uh, that these things were going on. Uh, that both males and females were, were in service roles within the church. Uh, and I mentioned a few of them earlier in terms of baptism, in terms of, of women ministering to women and children. Those different things were definitely in place very early on. So, yeah, uh, a good history on that. Anything else? Nobody wants to argue with verse 11? Yeah, Isaiah, go ahead. <laughs> Yeah. 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 So that Isaiah's talking for people at home. Um, <laughs> he's doing a presentation. The the idea of of uh, the elders involving the congregation in large decisions, um, and, and and that and the transparency is so important there, right? That that it's not some boardroom, it's not shareholders, it's not you know that kind of thing. That uh, that there there is a even though we have an elder lead, there is a cooperative idea going on here within the congregation. We don't ever want to hide anything uh, from what's going on. That's that's why you get all the financials every year and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, any church that doesn't show you the finances, ooh, don't go to that church. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You can, we, we, every year, at the end of the year, we do the recommendations for things like that. And, it, you know, that, that, some of that is, uh, for deacons especially, that's very helpful. You know, um, elders a little different. Sometimes it's a little more difficult. But in terms of deacons, that's really helpful um, in, in making sure we, because uh, so much of deacon work goes on behind the scenes. And sometimes the congregation is much more informed on that than, say, the elders are sometimes. So it's, that's, that's important. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah, Marshall. <laughs> yeah. I think it's, no, I think he's totally separate. 
So he has, so, which is why I would, I would say, okay, I don't agree with that, but I can see how you came to that conclusion. And so he has a separate group of female deacons who serve particularly women's needs in the church, which, you know, I, I think we kind of do that as well. We just don't call them deacons, right? Like we have that. I, I think women serve women just like men would serve men and that kind of thing. So yeah, that's how he does it. So that's why I'm a little more gracious with it. Yeah, yeah. Clearly, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 I agree. Yeah, that wouldn't be wise. Yeah, I, I agree. But yeah, I think I think that's that, that's how he does it. And again, that's that's and, and again, it's a legitimate translation of the verse. But I think it kind of pulls the verse a little out of context to do it that way. That's why I would, that's why I would argue against it. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah, Pastor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I like that. Yeah. Just a big sign, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Something like anointed on there or something like that. Yeah, yeah. James speaks against that, so I think we won't do that. Uh, <laughs> all right, anything else? Hey, good. We'll talk when we get home, Marcus. Marcus wants to know about church government. He's really, uh, really, really into it. <laughs> all right, well, let me close this in prayer. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your time and your word as always. And um, we want to do things biblically, Lord. We want to honor your word. Uh, because it is the only uh, absolute truth we have in this world. You've defined it. You've given it to us. You've revealed the mysteries of the faith to us. We want to know you more. We want to be obedient to what you've commanded us. We want to honor you with our lives, with how we uh, do church in your household. Uh, It's important, Lord. It's it's the most important thing uh, in the ministry that we do here. Bless us and keep us as we go, Lord. Uh, Give us opportunities to serve you this week, Lord. Uh, Clear our minds. Give us clean hands, pure hearts. Uh, commit us in prayer this week uh, to things that need to be prayed about, things with people in need, and uh, for your glory, for your gospel, for the spread of it, and we give you the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen.